Jeremiah chapter 6 this morning, verses 16 through um, 19. So let's read those again. Thus says the Lord, stand in the way and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it, and then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear you nations and know generations what is among you. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my laws, but rejected it. My message this morning is directed both to fathers and also just to the men who are among us and the young men that are not yet married. Jeremiah was not married. He was called even before he was in the womb to be a prophet to Israel. He did not want the job. His uh, message was one message and one message only, and that was that judgment was coming upon Israel. It was imminent, and it would come from the north. So Jeremiah, because of the seriousness of his message, the Lord did not allow him to marry. He was not a married man. So even though it's Father's Day, I'm not going to give a Father's Day message, but I would like to direct it to the fathers, and what I'd like you to take home with you, men, is um, in the times that we live, we need to be men's men, like Jeremiah. Even though he never had one convert, he got absolutely no encouragement from anyone except the Lord, and at the end of his days, they did away with him because they did not like his message. So again, as we go through Jeremiah, I think it's pertinent and very relevant to the, to the parallels that we see in our own nation today, as I also believe that judgment is imminent. So even though it's Father's Day, we're still teaching chapter by chapter, and um, verse by verse through God's word. And here Jeremiah is telling them, they're backslidden as a nation. So he says, I want you to think back to the old ways. Remember the old ways. With, with Joshua and that generation, or when David ruled, and Solomon, when he had rest, and you sought, you sought the Lord. Remember that it's then you found rest for your souls. But now you've gotten away from all that, and you're so totally backslidden that the Lord has written you off, and um, instead of, he wants them to repent, but he knows they're not going to. So Jeremiah's message is one of, of a judgment because they would not repent. It says, um, listen to the sound of the trumpet, but they said, we, we won't listen, and we don't want to hear God's word. So that's what the people were saying to Jeremiah. Their sins were personal sins of lying, adultery. The worst of it was actually offering their children to Moloch to be sacrificed in fire. That's how backslidden and morally depraved the nation of Israel was this morning. Um, I'd like to look at our text this morning on three different levels. First of all, as we go through the Bible, I want you to see that it's the context that is in. This is Jeremiah. Um, he is going to be prophesying before, during, and after. Um, the Babylonian invasion. He's going to warn them before. He's going to be there when it's happening. And he's going to talk to them after they're taken into captivity. So that part of the message I want to deal with. Um, and then on the, on the second one, I want to talk about the church at large in America today and a call for um, a godly personal walk and learning the lessons. So we'll be looking at denominations and churches uh, their doctrine, and we're going to compare it to the Word of God. And then the third division that I'd like to address is our nation today and how it parallels Israel's lifestyle. And as judgment was definitely imminent to Israel, I believe we have passed the point of no return. I'd like to tell you I'm an optimist, um, but I'm a pessimist when it comes to our nation as a whole. Individually, I don't have that mindset. Individually, I think the Lord is working and in bringing individuals to the Lord. 
But I, I truly believe we've passed the point of no return as a nation. And Jeremiah, I don't think it's any coincidence that we happen to be going through this book right now because that's the whole book. And he only had one message and nobody liked it. And yet he would not back down even though he said I quit a couple times. The Lord would not let him uh, leave the message. So the third point is going to be um, um, our nation in comparison to Israel. All right, let's begin with Jeremiah himself. And uh, like I said, he was born a prophet and called to be a prophet when he was very young. He was born during the time of the last of the godly kings of Israel. His name was Josiah. And his heart was tender towards the Lord. And uh, he ordered the rebuilding of the temple. And while they were rebuilding it, Hilkiah the priest found a copy of the word of God and gave it to Josiah. And he broke down and wept because nobody had read God's word until they found the Bible. So Jeremiah and Josiah were about the same age. Jeremiah, when he was called, uh, was 20 or younger. Josiah was uh, the same age. Jeremiah was hated. He was despised. He was mistreated uh, because of his message. There was no hope in his message. But as you read through the book, there's all kinds of other prophets that are saying, don't worry about a thing. You're not going to go into captivity. God's not going to judge you. People like that message, so they gravitated towards that instead of Jeremiah's message. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of the Hebrews talking about the prophets and the men of faith in the Old Testament says this about the prophets. Still others had trials of mockings and scourging, yes, and chains and imprisonment. They were sown, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And I love this verse, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in the desert and in mountains and dens and caves of men. Jesus said concerning Jeremiah and the other prophets, he says, wherefore, behold, I sent unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you killed and crucified, and some of them you scourged in your synagogue, and you persecuted them from city to city. We call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Now I'm gonna talk about false prophets this morning in the church, but I do believe that, there were, that the gift of being a prophet is clearly mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. I believe the prophetic gift is still alive and well. I, being, I believe it's being misused and twisted. But I, I truly believe that Dave Hunt had the gift of a true modern-day prophet. And I'm only quoting Pastor Chuck because that's how he introduced him the last time he spoke at one of our pastor's conferences at Costa Mesa. And... Um, Dave is with the Lord now, but I believe that that gift was upon him. He was called and, um, to bring direction and correction to the church at large. Not like a pastor to a single congregation, but to the church at large. God raised up Jeremiah from the womb to speak to his generation because they had drifted so far away from the Lord. Let's go back to Jeremiah 6 and just read verses 6 through 8 just to give you a little taste. And let me encourage you too, you know, the, the verse by verse stuff happens here on Wednesday evening. And I know it's summer, and I know, I know we got this little window of nice time and everything, but um, if you're gonna get the meat, uh, not that you're not gonna get it this morning, but the verse by verse we do on Wednesday evening. So um, in chapter six, verse six, this is just a little uh, piece of the condition of the nation. For thus says the Lord of hosts, hew down trees and build them on against Jerusalem. This is a city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst, as a fountain wells up with water, so the wells well up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continually are grief and wounds. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate in a land not inhabited. So even though judgment is imminent, he's pleading with them to try to get back. As to Israel, 
as is the church in America today, has backslidden. So our first point this morning, Jeremiah had his own word from the Lord. It was that you're going to be attacked by the king of Babylon from the north. You're going to go into captivity for 70 years, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. So don't fight against him when he comes against you. That was his message. Doesn't that make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside? Not at all, but that's, that was his message. Number two this morning, the state of the church at large, which I'm going to spend a, a good portion of our message on, in America today, and when I say the church, what I mean is any church that says that they are Christian. So there, there's a lot across the board there that has, if you would ask them if they were a Christian, they would say yes. And what I'm going to go through is as many as I could come up with, along with some of the more recent ones. And I'm going to put something on the screen right now that uh, comes from the, uh, my studies in the book of Revelation. And um, let me just address this first of all. Chapters 2 and 3, John is on the island of Patmos, years 96 AD. The Lord has appeared to him and said, John, I want you to write seven letters to seven churches. Every church has a promise given to it, um, has a word of exhortation, but there's four of them um, where it's implied there seems to be in existence four churches when the Lord returns. In other words, four types of churches, all named Christian, but all very, very different when the Lord comes. There are Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as I look at Christianity as a whole today, I do see this. And the verbiage that John uses is do this until I come. He only says that to four of the seven. So the implication is that these four churches will be in existence when Jesus Christ returns for his church. Thyatira, which is, I believe, Roman Catholicism. Uh, Philadelphia, which is, would be the born-again church, holding to the word. Um, Sardis, dead Protestantism, and Laodicea, the prosperity gospel that we see today. And we'll get to that in a moment. We're going to leave this up for right now. But let's look across uh, a section of, of denominations and their doctrines and compare them to the Word of God. I'll warn you ahead of time, I'm going to be stepping on toes. But all I'm simply doing is taking doctrine and then comparing it to what the Word of God says. So don't get offended and send me letters and do all that kind of stuff. Be a Berean before you do that and check it out for yourself. So let's start with the denomination that I grew up in, and that would be Lutheran. When I grew up, uh, if you take Lutheranism as a whole, of course, Martin Luther um, started the Reformation. And as a result, time goes by. Today we have three main branches of Lutheranism in our country. They are the Missouri Synod, the Wisconsin Synod, and the EC, um, the ELCA. And I'm going to go through them. Let's, let's start with um, um, oh, the one that I grew up with, which would have been the Missouri Synod. Um, believe they, the scriptures are the word of God, however, they are amillennial. That means no literal interpretation of Revelation. Uh, we never heard anything about Revelation when I grew up in the church. Uh, it was um, allegorized. Uh, it teaches consubstantiation, which says that the body and the blood of Jesus coexist in communion, whereas the Catholics believe that the bread and wine turn into the blood. That's called transubstantiation. Um, it's different from Bible-teaching churches, uh, they are still saying that the partaking in the body and the blood of Jesus, Missouri Synod also teaches that the sacraments save us throughout our lives by imparting measures of grace, starting with infant baptism. So I was baptized as a Missouri Synod Lutheran. And um, the Bible, of course, is always without exception, believe first and then be baptized. You will never see... Um, um, in the word of God, infant baptism. So that was what I grew up with. In contrast, let's go to the, the really extreme, the ELCA. 
Um, the cross is not about punishment for, for sin here. And, um, uh, the president of the Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, this is what they teach in their seminary students. One of the ELCA's favorite theologian, Marcus Borg, died in 2015, exposing the ELCA has written about the heretical teachings of Marcus Borg and his extensive connection with the ELCA in the past. Here is one of the quotes from Borg, an example of the heresies taught by this teacher's teacher. He says, I learned from my professors and the reading they assigned that Jesus almost certainly was not born of a virgin, did not think of himself as the son of God, did not see his purpose as dying for the sins of the world. Now, Brian McLaren, the, the guru of the secret sensitive movement, is one of the most popular speakers at the ELCA circles. They ordain practicing homosexuals since 2009. They ordain women, and they teach a social gospel, and they also believe in universalism. So here's a part of Lutheranism that's way over to the left. Now, further to the right would be the Wisconsin Synod. They do believe in the inspired word of God as being inerrant, salvation by grace and Jesus alone, faith alone given to us as a gift by grace through him. Universalism is rejected. Now, when I say universalism, I mean that everybody eventually is going to be saved. They reject that. Um, but the ELCA embraces it. Um, in the Wisconsin Synod, women cannot vote in congregational meetings nor serve in public ministry. Um, they hold uh, to the vocation. They have a closed communion, and they also do, however, take an allegorical view of the book of Revelation and also practice infant baptism. All right, that's just one. And I have to move on because there's many other. Let me move on to uh, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and Anglican. And I'm going to sort of throw them all in one, one pot because they're similar in many ways. Bruce Carroll was just up here. And um, he was in a Presbyterian church for 15 years. And um, he had to walk in the office one day. There's a church of 8,000 people down in Memphis. And he says, I can't do this anymore. And they had become so seeker-sensitive and gotten away from the gospel and gone to a social gospel that he couldn't do it. And very shortly after they, le- they left, they endorsed um, homosexuality as um, in the church. So the Presbyterians... Um, called for the divestment of funds from U.S. companies like Hewitt Packard that work with Israel, also calling for a boycott on all Israeli products. So they're, they're anti-Semitic in many ways. They are pro-abortion. They recently voted to redefine marriage as between two people, and they ordain women. Now, along with this, the Anglican and the Episcopalian Church are about as close to Roman Catholicism as you can possibly get. The Anglican Church grew out of King Henry um, VIII's personal acts to grind with Pope Clement VII. King Henry had uh, six wives. Herman's Hermit says he has eight, but you know, you gotta go with history, right? Two of them, two of his wives he beheaded, much to the disapproval of the church. Henry decided to use his throne to pass a series of laws to prevent the office of the Pope for having spiritual and political authority over England uh, ever again. One of these laws, entitled the Act of Supremacy, declaring the King of England to be the new head of the Church of England, giving him virtually the same authority in England as the Pope had over Rome. As a result, the Anglican Church is a curious and thoroughly ecumenical mix of Catholicism and Protestantism. Prince Charles is the governor of the Church of England, and today Justin Welby is the head bishop, a.k.a. the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Anglican Church today has 80 million members worldwide, includes the Episcopal Church, and is a mix of the above confessions as well as political and ecumenical bents in world view, so it should not surprise anyone that it finds a strong voice in the evangelical circle today via the Alpha Course. 
So this is where the Alpha course that we've been talking about, Mary's Track was just published uh, from Lighthouse Trails. You can pick it up at our bookstore um, that exposes the Alpha course. But this is where it had its roots. So let's move on now to, in our country, um, the Baptists. Uh, The Baptists had a big split in the early 90s over the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, Ronnie Floyd is the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's partnering with Mike Bickle. Now, Mike Bickle is one, he's the guy who oversees IHOP, and uh, Mike Bickle is also one of the Kansas City prophets, false prophets. So they're in bed together. IHOP and the New Apostolic Reformation, what we call the NAR, for Bickle's one uh, thing conference in December 2015, expected to draw 20,000 young adults from Kansas City area. Floyd was a speaker, music provided by Catholic Mike Meyer. The recent Southern Baptist Convention, titled The Great Awakening, called, carried the call to prayer, fasting, revival, spiritual awakening, evangelism, church planning, and to call to complete the Great Commission. So while the wording may be slightly different, the basic idea is the same. The goal is to push an experimental form of evangelism through a charismatic production of a pseudo-gospel and a spiritual manifestation uh, that are centered around their own hopes and purpose of a revival rather than obedience to the word of God. On the other hand, we have many theological conservative pastors who preach the word of God. So we do have good Baptist churches out there that are independent. They say, no, we're not going to do that. We're simply going to teach God's word, and we're not going to get caught into this latest trend. But within the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention, all the sermon has been lost. Uh, We have seminary leaders promoting atheist groups. Uh, Russell Moore, outspoken president of the Ethics Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, regularly partners with Roman Catholics and Lifeway bookstores under the leadership of Ed Steitzer. He's a guy that you need to become aware with. Peddling all sorts of heresy for cash. The conversion, uh, the convention has lost its conviction and it is no longer rooted in sound doctrine. And it's become one of those that has become another social seeker sensitive church. Um, The next one on the list is probably more current, but let me go back and just take a big step back and try to explain what's going on as, as a big picture that goes back to 1994. And it's when Chuck, Charles Colson, remember him? Uh, Nixon's ex man and he, was, he got saved. That's going back to the Nixon times, so you'd have to be a little bit older here. Uh, but he started an organization called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And he wanted to completely undo the Reformation, for which many, many Christians, born-again Christians, refused to compromise during the Reformation. But he wanted to undo it. So in 1994, I'll try to make this brief and just give you some of the key figures. Pat Robertson, uh, J.I. Packard, uh, Bill Bright, Cardinal O'Connor, Bishop Carl Sevilla, Peter Kraft, and Charles Colson. Men like this put this documentation together and openly called for all Christians to put aside their doctrinal divisions that cause division and let's have unity. So this goes back to 94. I would be amiss to not throw into this mix right now um, the NAR, which I mentioned, which you need to be aware of. That is the New Apostolic Reformation. Now, Bob and Amy Spreeman, uh, fellowship here at Calvary, and I took this off of Amy's uh, website. This is from the Berean Research. That's Amy Spreeman. The New Apostolic Reformation is a dominionist movement which asserts that God is restoring the lost office of church governments, namely the office of prophets and apostles. Leading figures in this seemingly loose organization movement claim that these prophets 
and apostles alone have the power and the authority to execute God's plans and purposes on earth. They believe they are laying the foundation for a global church governed by them. They place a greater emphasis on dreams, vision, extra-biblical revelation, and they do all in, in the Bible claiming that uh, the revealed teachings and reported experiences, i.e. their trips to heaven and face-to-face conversations with Jesus, visiting with angels, etc., etc., um, is really what they're about. It's really an extension of what we know as dominionism, that we will, the church, will be the ones that Christianize the world, and only then, and under their leadership, only then will the Lord Jesus Christ come back. Now, the last time I looked out there, their, their premise is the world is going to get better and better and better, and then Jesus is going to come back. Now, anybody that has any sort of a reality check at all is aware that the world is not getting better and better and better. Good place for an amen. What do we see? We, we wake up and wonder what, what's going to get hit today, and we know where it's all heading. But Jesus said that. See, this is where it contradicts the scriptures. Jesus said, in the days of Noah, it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. It's the beginning of sorrows. Perilous times are going to come. Now, fast facts. Uh, the third wave, the, they're also known as the latter reign, the kingdom now, Joel's army, the manifested sons of God. His founder is a guy that Paul Smith's been warning us about for years. His name is C. Peter Wagner. Uh, he originally came out of, of Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, who claims the church of the 21st century will be ruled by apostles and prophets, linked with the Kansas City prophets, and um, the names of the these men would be men like C. Peter Wagner, Chuck Pierce, Sidney Johnson, Mike Bickle, Rick Jordan, Paul Kane, Todd Bentley. Um, that's the guy that likes to kick little old ladies in, <laughs> in the face in Jesus' name. Lou Engel and Bill Johnson. All right, let's move on. Um, the main ones that are making an impact in the church today and gotten away from biblical Christianity is Bill Hybels, Willow Creek, and Rick Warren Saddleback. Now, I lumped them together for a reason, because both of them were highly influenced by a non-believing man who is extremely influential named Peter Drucker. He's a businessman. He's not born again. He does not know Jesus. But he definitely wants to get into the mega churches, and by following his patterns, he guarantees a large successful church. I agree with half of it. You will get a large church when you do demographic studies and ask people, what would you like to hear? Well, certainly not Jeremiah, okay? So what would you like to hear? And now you have, a, the best example of this is the largest church in our country, 48,000 to 50,000 people with Joel Olstein, who never has a bad thing to say or negative thing to say about anything or anybody, but just what's the best for you. Don't you like hearing about you? Reminds me of that Toby Keith song, every once in a while, you know, I like to talk about you, but right now I want to talk about me. (laughs) You guys never heard that song, huh? Yeah, that's an oldie too. Um, So without getting into a lot of them, they're extremely successful. Um, Rick Warren um, is one of the keynote speakers at a huge uh, Catholic um, convention. Um, Heibel, and this is where I'm going to bring in, I hope you don't get the impression, oh, okay, Calvary Chapel is the only place where it's at. No, we're in, problem, we're in deep problems too. Bill Heibel just spoke at our Bible college in uh, Hungary uh, with his social gospel. Heibel teaches the Alpha Course, and he allows Sunday night services held by an ecumenical young man who works with the Catholic priest to pull this off. And um, basically, it's the epitome of the market-driven, seeker-sensitive model. And numerically, it has been extremely successful after surveying the communities. I actually wrote an open letter to all the members of um, uh, the Willow Creek Association. And it was over 80 of them, and I sent it statewide. Uh, expressing and documenting all my concerns 
and Bill Hybel openly admitting that what he did didn't work. And um, let's move on to the Church of Laodicea, because I could spend the whole study just on this, and I don't want to. And that is, um, why don't you turn to Revelation 3 for this one so you can see, and I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees here, Revelation 3, the Church of Laodicea. One of the great ways for fleecing the flock, making money, is by selling books and having conferences. And that's happening big time today. So the prosperity doctrine has been introduced to relatively new phenomena in our generation. The main leaders in the prosperity movement is Joyce Meyer, Morris Cirillo, uh, Kenneth Copeland, Paul Crouch, his wife just died last week. One of the big ones is Sephiro Dollar. He's trying to get his congregation to get him a $50 million um, new jet. Kenneth Hagen, Marilyn Hickey, Benny Hinn, Rodney Howard Brown, T.J. Jakes, Joel Olstein, um, Fred Price, Joseph Prince, Oral Roberts, Robert Schuler, Robert Tilton, and the list goes on and on. Um, those who are supporters of this wrongful word faith movement, also known as the positive confession, I like to call, I like to call it name it and claim it. The power is in your words. So be careful what you say. Because what you say is going to come to pass on you. That can be completely dispelled very, very easily. Because David said to one of his men, he says, today I know for sure that Saul's going to kill me. Well, it came out of your mouth, David. Did David die that day? No. So forget the name it and claim it. That's just not the way it works. You, you don't give your child, fathers, do you give them everything they want? No. There's times you say, no, you're not going to have that. So James says you ask and you ask amiss because you're asking to, for your own personal gain. Therefore, you're not going to get it. But if you hold to the prosperity teaching, this has caused many, I've spent many an hour with people who have come out of this movement, totally damaged, bankrupt because they were investing their seed faith into this ministry, and they come up broke, and they have nothing. And they're disillusioned, they don't want anything to do with the church. So what does it say about the church of Laodicea? In the last days, um, verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Jesus said stuff like that? Yeah, he did. Because you say, I'm rich, I become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And you don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That was, their assessment of themselves was completely different from the Lord's assessment of them. And I find that interesting. And um, therefore, he says, rebuke, uh, be rebuked and, and, uh, and repent. And that's what he asked that particular uh, church denomination uh, to do. Now, um, the list could go on with with them, but I have to confess that even Calvary chapels have embraced the sensitive, uh, seeker-sensitive model. We've allowed Reformed theology into some of our Calvaries. There's been a call for women to be ordained in the ministry. We've endorsed Hillsong. I saw a video yesterday of Levi Lisco, one of the regional Calvary Chapel leaders involved with every one of Hillsong's um, and what's ever current and out there today um, should have no part of the Calvary Chapel distinctives. Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa has recently endorsed the Alpha Course. Greg Laurie, the best evangelist in the world today, in my opinion, uh, giving him the credit, has recently endorsed a totally off the wall Azusa crusade in Los Angeles. So a little leaven leavens a whole lump. But I don't want to stand up here as a Calvary Chapel pastor and say, you know, we, we have our act together. No, we have our own concerns. And I'll sort of tie the study up with my concerns with that. And you're thinking, Dwight, pretty depressing so far. Could you get any worse than you already are? 
Well, all I can say is that we're teaching through the book of Jeremiah right now, men. And the message wasn't pleasant. But the message was from the Lord. And he had no encouragement and no support. And nobody wanted to hear him and what he had to say. But yet, you know what I'm telling you is out there and is happening. And as your pastor, I have to, have to name names from time to time, or otherwise you're not going to know who to look out for. It says, look out for the wolves. Well, how do you know what a wolf is unless I tell you what a wolf is? And compare it to the scriptures. The, the litmus test for truth is this book right here, gang. And what I've simply tried to do in a nutshell this morning is look at Christianity as a whole and how it's been infected in these last days. Having said that, should we be surprised? Is not the word of God telling us exactly that's exactly what would happen in this generation? First um, John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit whether they are of God. How do you test it? You compare it to the scriptures, whether or not it lines up. Question, does infant baptism taught in the Bible? And why should you make such a big deal out of it, Dwight? Because I sat at my Aunt Sue's funeral and uh, the Lutheran minister said, we know that Sue is in heaven because she was baptized when she was a baby. I was like this, because I wanted to stand up and said, that's not true. And it took everything because they were talking to my family. And that was false doctrine. And I knew that unless you, you can be baptized a hundred times as an infant, but uh, unless you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and you're not born again, Jesus said you must be born again. And then you be baptized. That's what the Bible teaches. The church today was not a generation of old. We've forgotten our foundation, even in the Calvary Chapel movement. And Paul's writing to our generation. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he was writing to this generation that you and I are living in right now. And he says, I charge you. Well, those sounds like pretty strong words, don't they? You'll never hear Joel Olstein say those words. I charge you. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant, in season and out. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come Well, they will not endure sound doctrine. Jeremiah was teaching sound doctrine. It was from God himself, and he says, judgment is imminent because you won't listen to my word. But according to their own desires, they will heap up, they'll have itching ears, heaping up teachers for themselves. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now this was Paul, be like Pastor Chuck speaking to my generation and saying, guys, but you watch in all things, endure affliction like Jeremiah did. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Some of you are thinking, um, well, come on, Dwight. Didn't Jesus say in John 17, he prayed three different prayers, one for himself, one for his disciples, and one for those who would believe because of the disciples. That's you and me. And this was his prayer. I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and you have loved them and you have loved me. So why can't we all just get along? Jesus said he all wants us to be one. Well, he does, but not in, in light of compromising truth and doctrine. Good place for an amen, gang. You know, we, we want to be one with each other and uh, in, in the church. And let me preface that by saying there, in every one of these churches that I just mentioned, Jesus said to the church of Thyatira, which I would believe is a church of, uh, of, uh, of um, Roman Catholicism. He says, he says, but there are some in this organization that do not hold to this doctrine. 
So that means that there are those in these different denominations. They're involved with false doctrine, but they're truly born again believers. Good place for an amen there too. So what's, again, the litmus test is gonna be the, the scriptures and, and um, so some of you are thinking, so why the controversy, Dwight? Why do this on Father's Day? We, we wanna have a good happy lunch together. Let me put it to you this way. This is what Walter Martin said. Um, who's heard of Walter Martin? I'm just curious. Good. He wrote the classical work called The Kingdom of the Cults. It is the definitive work on false teaching. And this is a quote from him. He says, controversy, for the sake of controversy, is sin. Controversy for the sake of truth is a divine mandate. And so, yes, Jesus prayed for unity, but not at the sake of compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ for a watered-down social gospel that just talks about being a nice guy and doing nice things for nice people. And there's a world of difference between the two. And Jeremiah was one who had to give that message, and it wasn't easy. Jesus said there are times you must have division. Really? Jesus said that? Yes. He says, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace on earth, but division. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more is not worthy of me. And he who does not pick up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you see why it's important that we go through and explain, this is what they believe, this is where they're on, but this is where they're off. And I don't want to start controversy for the sake of controversy, but I do want to defend truth as it's outlined in the word of God itself. Another good place for an amen. So I challenge everybody here not to believe a word I just said. Be a Berean. Check it out for yourself and see if these things are so. Brings us to our last point this morning. That was the church. Jeremiah was ministering to people and a nation. Well, we've just dealt with the church. Now I want to talk our final point this morning. The United States of America as a nation. And the parallel of Jeremiah's time. Our country really was founded on a Judean Christian principle. And there was a time. I was driving to church this morning. I drove by a, um, a ball diamond. The place was packed out. Little League Baseball on Sunday morning. That was unheard of in my day. Everything was closed down in my day. Why? Because it was Sunday. It was a day of rest. And nobody thought about, you know, people went to church even if they didn't, weren't believers. You still went to church. So that's where our old ways were. I look back at the old ways, the way it was. And that's what the Lord is, through Jeremiah, saying, remember the old ways and you'll find peace. We are no longer a Christian nation. I get so upset every time some politician says, and God bless America. I can't pray that prayer anymore. I can't pray for God to bless this nation because of what it's deteriorated into. We do not deserve blessing. We deserve judgment, just like Jeremiah's generation deserved judgment. Now, let's go back to the list of I'll just read a little bit of chapter 7 and see if you can make any identifying parallels between Jeremiah's generation and our generation. Chapter 7, and we'll read the first um, 10 verses, and then verses 30 and 31 also. The Lord came to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. And proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in these gates and worship the Lord. Remember, the temple had just been rebuilt. So the buzz was the temple, the temple, the temple. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust, and here it is, in lying words saying, 
the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and a neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, you do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, well, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. But you're trusting in lying words that cannot profit. And here's the list of sins. Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? Will you swear falsely? Will you burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods whom I do not know? And then come and stand before me in this temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. I can't help but think of Jesus coming in and seeing the money changers uh, exchanging, making a profit at the temple. And um, our mild-mannered, Jesus never gets angry, made a whip, and he drove those guys out. He said, get out of here. You're not gonna make this place a place of merchandise. And he cleaned house. And uh, he turned over the money changers and he drove them out. The Bible says never a man spoke like this man. Never a man did the things that this man did. Oh yes, he's lowly and meek in heart and you'll find rest for his souls. And he only did good, but he would not compromise with the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. Now, some, I remember, you know, the downfall came in 1963 when no longer could you allow prayer in school. Do you know that they still have prayer in school today? Every time there's a test, there's prayer in school. (laughs) In 1973, Roe v. Wade, if we read back in, in Jeremiah, if you go to verse 31, It says, and they built the high places, which is in the valley of the sons of Hammon, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Say what? That's what they did? Yeah. That's how you worship the god Moloch. You offer, literally, your children to Moloch, which I did not command, nor did I have it in my heart. Well, we've done the same thing. We're no different. It's up to 57 million or higher since 1973. And you think God's not going to draw a line sometime, somewhere, and say enough is enough? He says, my spirit will not always strive with, with man. Have we reached the point of no return? Well, Dwight, what about Second Chronicles 7, where it says, if my people, this is quoted all the time, which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. I agree with part of it. I disagree with part of it. I believe if you do that as an individual, you will come into a new relationship. You will have the old ways and there will be peace to your soul. But as I look at our nation today and we being in the book of Jeremiah right now, I am not optimistic. And I believe we've reached that point of no return and judgment is imminent. Billy Graham said so 25 years ago. If God doesn't judge the United States of America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And I agree, that was 25 years ago. Look what we have happening today. Talk about out of the closet. Individually, yes. Nationally, no. I know that this is grim. It's a sad reality that the Lord gave to Jeremiah. But one of the reasons that I'm glad that we go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse I got to deal with the book of Jeremiah, guys, and so do you. What's the bottom line with Jeremiah? One message, all 40 some chapters, and not one glim of hope in the whole book. Judgment is imminent, it's coming from the north, and amend your ways, but he says, You would not. But he's begging with them. Some are thinking, Well, Dwight, how do you know you're living in the last days? Well, that's an easy one. You know, because Jesus said in the parable of the fig tree, when you see Israel come back, 
They've been out of, out of the land since 70 AD. And now they're back in the land in one of the most prosperous nations in the country. He said he'd make it like the Garden of Eden, fourth largest producers of fruit in the entire world. This state of Israel, size of New Jersey. Uh, their technology is off the charts. They're improvising and, and uh, way ahead of us. Uh, the computer center of the, of, um, this is Silicon Valley over there in Israel. And the Lord is the one who said that when you see Israel return, you'll see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecies. And then he goes on right after that. He says, you'll also know that it's the last generation because it'll be like the days of Noah. Well, what was Noah's days like? Well, for 120 years, what was his message? Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. How many converts? Zero. Except for his family, eight people. For 120 years. Same thing with Lot. That Lot was removed from Sodom before the judgment came. And um, what I see here is Noah being taken out, then judgment comes. I see Lot and his family being taken out, and only then could judgment come. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5, is telling us the same thing. Yes, judgment is coming. That's pretty depressing. Uh, but he says, not for the church, not, the, not God's wrath. I'm quoting 1 Thessalonians 5 right now. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourself know that the day of the Lord comes as a thief of the night. Well, what is the day of the Lord? It's the day of judgment. It's the day of the wrath of the Lamb. And that's on the horizon. He says, for when they say peace and safety, um, then sudden destruction comes upon them as pain upon a woman, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, at least I don't want us to be in darkness, that day should overtake you as a thief. Your sons of light and sons of the day were not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us sleep as others do, but let's watch and be sober. And might I add in here, be aware of other false doctrines and false prophets that are out there. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who have the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of salvation. Why? Because God has not appointed you to wrath. He didn't appoint Noah to wrath. The Bible says Noah found grace. Wow, I found grace. You found grace. And because of that, you've not been appointed to wrath. You'll be taken out like Noah, and you'll be be removed by like Lot. Therefore, scare one another to death every day, just as you're doing. That's how he ends it. No, he tells us to watch, 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 watch. And then he says, therefore, comfort one another. So yes, judgment is imminent. And um, you know I'm telling you guys the truth. You're watching the news. And every day it gets worse and worse and worse. And this new apostolic um, um, doctrine that's out there, Reformed theology that's out there that's saying dominionism, it's all going to get better. I want to expose that this morning. That is a lie from the pit. The devil would like to think everything is going to get better. It's not. It's going to get worse. Now, in closing, yesterday in men's prayer, I want to be the first one to say, um, one of the guys made this comment in men's prayer. And he said, um, he was told one time, he said, uh, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll spoil it the second you walk through the door. So I don't want you to think for a second that we got our act together. Um, we all have blind spots. But I want, I want to encourage you and let you know that in light of all the things that we see happening so quickly, that we had a board meeting a couple of months ago. And I want to tell you as your pastor that we are committed to the old ways, to this book, not adding to it, not taking away from it, and we, next week we're going to be in Jeremiah, somewhere farther down the road. And then we're going to get all the way to the book of Revelation. And when we're done, if we're still here, we're going to go back to the Genesis and do it all over again. And we're not going to cut corners 
with the stuff that we don't like to hear. Good place for an amen. Our board is committed to that. And in saying that, I'd like, you, I'd like you to show what our, my pastor, Pastor Chuck, exhorted, as Paul exhorted Timothy, he said, Timothy, I exhort you. Listen up, Timothy. Turn, and I'll close with this. Turn to Acts chapter two. I want to show you our old ways. And I'm grieved to the core when I see the leaven that's crept into the Calvary Chapel movement. So lest you think that we, got our, we are the only ones that have our act together, no. But I'm, I'll tell you this, we're gonna to try to keep the wolves out. I'm gonna to try to keep you abreast on the false doctrine and teaching that is prevalent as it was in Jeremiah's time. And that is, as a board, we will do what's ever necessary to maintain that integrity, no matter what happens to our affiliation with Calvary Chapel. I did write a letter several months back to the leadership of the Calvary Chapel movement expressing my concerns, documenting, detailing every area that leaven has crept into the Calvary Chapel movement. And I was deeply concerned from it. As a result of that letter, um, there was a reaction. And we just had our pastor's conference here, and if you'd like to know the reaction from our leadership in the Calvary Chapel movement to my letter, you can pick up this DVD after the service. Pastor Chick Chikalis gave it at our pastor's conference here. Make a great Father's Day gift, as far as I can see. But it's just there so that you can know what's going on in our own movement. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this was the old ways. And I will close with this this morning. This program-oriented church of the Hybels and and the Rick Warrens, it burns people out because they simply can't maintain it and do it over the long haul. But what I'm about to read to you, you can do over the long haul. In verse 42, this is how the old ways, the early church, the first church, did it. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possession and goods, divided them among all, and anyone that had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, having breaking bread from house to house with gladness and simplicity of heart. What are the four things they had? Well, they were in Bible study, they were in fellowship, they had communion, and they had their prayer meetings. Four things. That was the foundation. That's the old ways. Gang, that's doable. I can do that from point A to point B. And then, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Good place for an amen. All right, so what does it say? If you do those things, verse 47, praising God, having favor with all the people, then the Lord will add to the church daily those that are being saved. Now, when you go out those doors, you're entering the mission field you have your own sphere of people that God has put you in contact with. The gift of pastor-teacher it says, is for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. I want to be able to equip with sound doctrine so that you can expose false doctrine, not with an I-know-something-you-do attitude, but out of loving concern that you're not going to get saved with the social gospel by doing good things but you actually have to repent. Is it a popular message? No. No more popular than Jeremiah's message. Are people gonna get excited and jump up and down? Well, after they get saved, yeah. One of, one of the guys in the prayer room was witnessing to a guy for years and, and forgot about him. He got a knock on the door and he opened the door and here's this guy he had witnessed to. Well, he got saved and he was crying like a little baby and he wanted to go back and talk, tell his friend what, what had happened to him. So the joy of the Lord is there, but it only comes when you go back to the old ways and it's the gospel versus the leaven that we see creeping into the church today. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, I know this is tough to hear on Father's Day, but it's it's where we are, where we are as we go through your word, Lord. And um, I just pray that 
uh, you, we would be equipped to do the work of ministry. That, um, um, as Walter Martin said, we're, we don't want to pick a fight or be controversial. But if it means defending truth, then we have a divine mandate from you. And then where you said, no, you didn't necessarily come to bring peace but division. But Lord, when we do it your way, there is that perfect peace that comes when we return to the old ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.